Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 45. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Andrew Carter, entertainment attorney, former editor for Terrorizer Magazine, music journalist, and one-time band manager. In this episode, Andrew and I are recapping our experience at night one of S&M 2, Metallica and the San Francisco Symphony, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the original S&M and adding a whole bunch of new stuff. I'd like to remind you to please leave a five-star rating and a nice little review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening, as that stuff really does help. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ryan Downey, on Instagram, at SuperheroHQ. You can also find Speak and Destroy on all the usual social media platforms. And without any further ado, let's get into my conversation with Andrew and our nice, detailed recap of SNM2 Night 1. This is Speak and Destroy. episode of Speak and Destroy, I wanted to do something a little bit different, which is to talk about a very recent show, a historical Metallica-type performance, and to have on a good friend who accompanied to that show. Uh, so I'd like to welcome to Speak and Destroy, Mr. Andrew Carter. Andrew is uh, an entertainment attorney. He was an editor at Terrorizer Magazine in the 90s. Uh, he's been a band manager and and more importantly, and most importantly, is a sharp-witted, intelligent, experienced, and thorough friend who loves Metallica. So, Andrew, welcome. Was that a was that a suitable introduction? Thank you. Yeah. Wow. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to make a recording of that and just use it as my ringtone. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> take that. Yeah. Maybe you I'm, can. Uh, if, if there's ever audio resumes at some point, I can make myself available to my to my friends, my trusted cadres. Excellent, man. Let's let, let's jump into this. Metallica S&M 2, the 20th anniversary of the 1999 performance with the San Francisco Symphony, which of course was conducted by Michael Kamen, the late great Michael Kamen, and released, uh, you know, as a DVD and a record. And I believe I actually watched it air live on MTV. I think MTV showed the whole thing back in 1999, which is you know wild to think about now. Yeah. So this came up. I. Just things going on with my schedule and my professional and personal life when it was announced, I I really had no reason to think that I would be able to go. So I just kind of put it out of my mind. I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, I live in Southern California and it's in San Francisco, not to take anything away from people who undoubtedly travel from all around the world to go. I just didn't think I'd be able to make it. And then within 24 hours of me finding out that I actually had that weekend free, Andrew contacted me and said that it turned out one of the two tickets that he had purchased a while back when this thing first went on sale was in fact available. <laughs> so some nice uh, serendipity, higher power, however you want to look at it. It worked out where suddenly we were in the car driving to San Francisco to go see night one of S&M 2. It really does does um, head all the way back to just being a very longtime fan of Metallica, where I was somebody who 
got into them when Ride the Lightning came out. And uh, I got into them in the fall of 84 and just was instantly on um, on the bus and have stayed there. And then when they started the Metallica Club in the 90s, I was uh, not in the very first wave of people who joined, but probably in the second wave. And that actually paid dividends this year because when they did the uh, presale, the fan club presale for this, legacy members who are kind of the oldest of the old, were able to get in an hour before everybody else and get tickets. And so I was able to actually, I was one of a handful of fan club members that actually did get tickets for the first show. And so it really, you know, if I, if, if I hadn't been overly devoted to the band by the, by the 90s, um, it probably wouldn't have happened. I mean, aside from the, the long tangent we could go on to about how kind Metallica is to their fans and, and how forward thinking they've been about that, like they are about, just every, just about everything. You and I are both professionals in the music industry, <laughs> with air quotes. Um, and as you know, journalists and managers and other hats that we've both worn, uh, you know, getting getting uh, getting into things is a perk of the job. For all of the pitfalls, you know, we're often able to be guest listed or to have first crack at different things. And yet, I mention all this because both of us are also big enough Metallica fans that we have been paying members of the Metallica fan club, regardless of whatever access we've had over the years that, you know, the average person may not be privy to. Uh, You know, we, I I mean, literally I was a card carrying fan club member when they would send out membership cards. You, your membership certainly predates mine. Mine came about uh, actually in the early to mid two thousands as I was putting together a fan club for the band Demon Hunter, who was, you know, I've, been their manager for many years as people listening to the show undoubtedly have heard me talk about at some point just in kind of doing research about you know what kind of fan clubs are out there who's doing it well who's doing it terribly i signed up for a few and metallica was first in mind and that was the one that i renewed every year <laughs> for letting all the other ones lapse uh you know because it was more than research it was actual fandom so yeah when they did away with their fan club which that might not even be the right phrase, you know, they basically transitioned the fan club to incorporate everyone. And rather than a tiered, you know, annual payment system where you get the t-shirt and the fan can and whatever, and the magazine and all that stuff, you know, they really made it where anyone who just registers on the website is now uh, a fifth member as they call it. Right. But they have extended Lots of olive branches to us, legacy members, as they call us, and one right. of them, as you astutely described, was uh, the opportunity to get into the show, especially after there was some controversy over the ticket rollout for night one that resulted in the addition of night two. Uh, it's also important to point out to listeners that we're talking about night one. Like, as a legacy fan club member, you did get an early crack at a night one ticket, and not only did you get two of them, they were great seats. We were a few rows back. From legendary Metallica co-manager Cliff Bernstein, which so yeah, we had we, to have had great seats if we were sitting behind Cliff. Yeah, we were 15, 15 rows up, dead center, and you know, really you, um, on the aisle, we really couldn't have had much better seats. Uh, especially, be, you know, being I mean, you know, being front row is always going to be a lot of fun. But I think in this case, when you have an orchestra that's right there, I'm wondering that probably from a sound standpoint, I feel like being a little further back um, might have been. Uh, would have been my first preference. So when, you know, when I was logging online, you know, getting these tickets, I was, you know, 
very, very lucky that these are the two that came up because I would have taken the two that, you know, whatever two I could have gotten, I would have taken. And these happen yeah. to be the two that came. And so, um, yeah, it, it worked out uh, very well. And yeah, and just the the addition of the second show for fan club members only was a really, really good move. And I'm glad they did it. And uh, it's, it's something and, and I agree with you in terms of how they ran their fan club when it was a paid deal. I saw how lots of other bands do it, uh, but the two that that uh, the two bands that I've stayed in there and continued to pay pay for the the membership. I mean, even now, I guess um, well, Metallica doesn't charge anymore, but I'm still paid up member of the Iron Maiden fan club because oh, nice. you, you still get first crack at tickets and you get discounts on merchandise and their um, their their fan club magazine, which they probably did a hundred issues of, was really good. I even contributed to that once or twice, um, but that was also one that was very very uh, inclusive and, and very fan friendly and makes you feel like a part of it. And they, they are, and I wouldn't even be surprised to find out that Metallica kind of borrowed a trick or two from Maiden when they were sure. figuring out what to do with theirs. So, but yeah, I think, you know, they've, you know, Metallica tickets and merchandise and everything, they're pretty much, it's, it's market value. Now they're, they're far from the most expensive of the rock and roll hall of fame level bands, but they also don't do like the Fugazi charge five bucks for everything. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they have purposely taken kind of like the middle road. So they, you know, their, their tickets aren't cheap, but at the same time, when you compare them to what say the Rolling Stones or the Eagles charge, it's further down the scale. And for me, I think, you know, it's, you generally have now, you know, eight, you know, six to 12 months of lead time before the show happens. So, you know, you, you have time, you, you know, you have time to you know save up or pay for the ticket. And when you go to see these shows, you know, they spend a lot of money on their production. You can see where your money goes. Absolutely. And yeah, and I, and I think the other thing is too, is that, um, you know, putting the, the business person's hat on for a sec, um, music business is two words and not one. And yes, for a significant part of, of my life, I've been able to have access to guest lists and uh, entry and things like that. But increasingly more and more, I tend not to try to use them unless I'm very, very, very close friends with the band because they're running a business and not a charity. And unless I have some sort of really compelling reason to be backstage, especially in Los Angeles, they need that guest list for somebody else. You know, it's um, I, I try less to to use it. And I generally feel, you know, these bands are working hard to make a living. I mean, Metallica are obviously as well off as you can possibly be, but that's one, they're, they're part of the 1% of bands. Most yeah, of them. And they employ such a large organization, you know, right. the overhead is, is gotta be, uh, I think that's something that gets overlooked. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a, the same opinion as you. And also, uh, you know, with Metallica specifically, I'm happy to shell out the ticket price for something like S&M 2, especially when, you know, I was able to, to see them in like a 1200 cap room in San Diego during Comic-Con. And that was through, you know, I took a gig that summer uh, freelancing for MTV News, my former employer, and, and interviewed Kirk for them. And then as part of that, was able to get into that show. And I'm aware of what a massive privilege that is. So when it's time to pay for a ticket, I don't mind. Or when they did a show in a, a similar small room for them, the Fonda in Hollywood, which I think is maybe 1400 cap. Uh, they did a show at the Fonda a few years ago, and it was a, a couple hundred bucks, uh, you know, benefit for, I think, uh, an LA food bank. And again, that's like, of course you're going to pay that. And of course it's going to be worth it. And it's a privilege just to go. So yeah, there's no problem paying for Metallica tickets and merch and everything else that I've have and continue to pay for over the years and it, it again it, it kind of speaks to how well run the organization really is that even with those problems 
with the on sale for the first show, longtime fans like us were able to get great seats at a great price. Yes. And got in there. So, you know, it, it, it worked. And, and to your point about the front row, I think not only with the orchestra, uh, you know, and, and what that might, the challenge that might cause in terms of sound quality sitting right up front or standing right up front. There was also the rotating stage, which you noticed well before I noticed that was slowly revolving. And by the time people are listening to this, you know, they've probably watched some things on YouTube. And then there's the film release that's coming next month. They were played in the round as they often do, but the stage, you know, moved slowly throughout the whole show. So it really made sure there wasn't a bad scene anywhere, but I, yeah, I would have preferred to have been exactly where we were and able to get the full visual of that as it's going around. And before we dive into that, I wanted to take one step back and talk about the first S&M show kind of to lead into this is that I did not get to see first S&M show. I did get the letter from the Metallica fan club or the email it might have been at that point saying we're playing two nights at the Berkeley Community Theater. You know, call this number or, or, or go online very quickly. Uh, it's fan. It was just the vast majority of the people at that show or fan club members. Um, I couldn't make the trip. Um, and I, you know, I thought about it, you know, I mean, but, um, at the, the reason why I couldn't is because I was over in London. I, I lived for six years in London at the time and I had just started a new job the week of those shows at a management and record company. And I'd left Terrorizer and had started managing uh, Raging Speedhorn. And also, you know, uh, my partner and I were also already managing Iron Monkey at that point. So it was not, the timing was really bad, couldn't make it. The whole reason why I was even in England in the, in the first place also even dates back to the Metallica fan club, which is that if you go back four years earlier than that, July of 95, I was living and working in Washington, D.C. and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I came home went from work one day and there was a letter. This was pre this was kind of, you know, very end of the, the, the pre-Internet age. And it was a letter from the Metallica fan club saying we're recording our album right now, which turned out to be load. Mm-hmm. They said we're really sick of being uh, cooped up. So we've decided we're going to go headline the Monsters of Rock Festival over in England at Castle Donington. And uh, because we're a little bit rusty at this point, we are going to play a secret show at a central London location that will be Metallica fan club members only. If you are interested in going to one or both of these shows, please call this number and leave your name and number and someone will call you back within 24 hours. And so at that, awesome, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, I was actually trying to decide um, whether I would go to – I was actually, like, the God's honest truth, was trying to decide between going to London or going to the to, to explore the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico for my vacation that year and take a week. And I came home and found that letter and guess, guess you know, well, London won. And uh, <laughs> so I – called I left the message and they called me back and so I made a week like a 10 day you know, like a like a, a nine day vacation out of it, a couple weekends with a week in between within 12 hours of being off the plane um, I'd fallen in love with London I had you know nine of the greatest days ever the gig turned out to be at a now unfortunately defunct club called the LA2 which was a 1000 capacity right in the center of London corrosion of conformity was the opening act and then three days later, and they did the entire run through of the two hour headline set, uh, Metallica did. And then. Which um, included uh, the first 
live taste of load than anyone it was a two by four and devil's dance and uh devil's dance didn't make it out till reload but yeah those were the debuts that night and then they played them again they played the exact same set three days later at donnington which was also outside of the big four the only time i ever saw metallica and slayer on the same day oh wow it was it was a lot of fun and, and I got to do like the, the the meet and greet and got a photo with Jason and got a photo with Lars and and it was uh, it was it, it was it was a magical nine days and the the card that I had in my back pocket the entire time is that I was actually born in Scotland to American parents who were living abroad so I came back from um, from England called up the embassy in Washington, D.C. and explained my situation to them. And they said, yeah, actually, um, you completely have a claim to citizenship. You come fill out some forms and we'll give you a passport. And uh, so I basically exercised. I, I didn't my, know this part of the story. That's amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and the U.K. So I took advantage of that. And so I was kind of in my mid-20s and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and decided, you know what? I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to sell my things. and I'm going to move to London to figure out what I'm going to do and seek fame and fortune there and didn't quite find either, but um, I definitely did well enough and, and, you know, had a great time. But what did happen is I went over, I got a job in the financial industry, hated it so badly and I quit and I went home and physically and metaphorically took my suit off and never put it back on because that was when I decided to do something that I loved and I got into music. And that was when I, I the first real job that I got was uh, on the terrorizer staff. I should mention, by the way, since it is a, the Metallica podcast at, at Donington, this was Newstead with uh, what I would describe as an Afro. Yeah. Um, yeah. Headfield with a mullet. Mohawk oh, thing. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. He gave. He he admitted that he gave the haircut to himself. <laughs> Kirk was uh, which is kind of the only thing that excuses it. Uh, Kirk was definitely full on Soundgarden mode at that point. With, uh, he was. You know, was black tank top and shorts and combat boots. Yep. Uh, interesting. Interesting transitional post black album preload reload moment for them uh, stylistically and and everything else. Um, I'm actually looking at their set list from. Donington, August 26, 1995, and, and you said that the set list was the same at the club gig. I don't remember if it was that year at Donington or a different year, but there's a great video on YouTube, which I can throw in the show notes, where Metallica does like a little medley of songs from the opening bands, but total like, you know, piss take versions. Yes, it was. It was that year. <laughs> yeah, 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 that was that was absolutely the Donington headline set. They didn't do that at the club because there were it was fun. the last year of Monsters of Rock only having one stage. Um, and so there were nine bands. I think it was Corrosion of Conformity, Warrior Soul, Machine Head who stole the early part of the day. Um, oh yeah, Machine Head um, 95 too. Wow. Let's see. Um, I'm forgetting who's fourth, but then there was um, Skid Row, and I'm, I'm going out of order here. Slash's Snake Pit, um, White Zombie, Slayer, Therapy, Skid Row. Um, I know Therapy was the, the next to headline, and I think Skid Row was right below them, and Slayer was below them. That's so wild, because, I mean, if Therapy obviously never would have been there in America, that, that spot in the bill. It, it was a really, really fun day of, of music, but it was, and it was also too, I was kind of happy to see like, you know, like some of these, you know, like therapy being that high up, you know, it was kind of like, you know, they, they were almost a little bit of like, almost like a little bit of a, a break before the two hour Metallica onslaught. 
But at any rate, I told you all that to say that I probably, my life changed a great deal because I got this letter in the mail from Metallica. Right. Um, right. I'm really not sure. As how, a member of the Met Club, because yeah, that, that yeah, club show I, was Met Club only. I don't know if I'd, you know, I, if I'd never gotten that letter, maybe I would have gone to the Yucatan Peninsula on vacation that year and everything would have turned out differently. But as it turned out, um, that was kind of the fork in the road that changed everything. You know, it's a band that I've stayed very loyal to for, you know, for musical reasons and also for, 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 you know, reasons like that. And so it was really nice to be able to be a day's drive from when, you know, from the re from, you know, the second version of this. And then in terms of making the trip up there, everything just sort of, fell into place. I think we kind of got a little bit of a late start out of Los Angeles on the morning, but then uh, the music gods were watching out for us because we had zero traffic all the way up the I-5 freeway. We headed east into Oakland uh, on the 580 and a couple of the other spur roads. No traffic going in. We, and by the, we hit downtown Oakland at about 5 p.m., no traffic whatsoever going so in. Insane. We parked in so minutes right by the BART station in Oakland. We decided because the peninsula is kind of a mess in terms of parking, we kind of ninja in from the East Bay. Waited about two minutes for the BART train to take us three stops across the bay. From there, we waited about one minute for the Muni trolley, which took us six short stops and dropped us literally on the front steps of the arena. And there are a few bands that I get this feeling from. I think being in the maiden audience is similar it does start to feel like, you know, the Metallica family when you're as much as you can be cynical about that sort of thing. When you're getting closer and closer to the show and you're seeing more and more Metallica shirts to then by the time that we're on that last little bit of mass transit pulling right up to the thing, it's all Metallica, you know, and it's that James Hetfield in the behind the music, like there are people like it's that vibe. Um, and it's, you know, young and old, big and small every nationality, every, you know, I mean, just a diverse group of people who are all united by love of this band and love of this music. And just looking around and seeing these t-shirts, they were, they were, you know, Metallica being one of the bands that's big enough and fortunate enough to be able to do concert location, date specific merchandise. You see these shirts from all over and we just, you know, we get on this thing and we just happen to be standing next to this group of people where one of the guys is wearing a shirt from Indianapolis, from the most recent Indianapolis tour stop, my hometown. And I point to him and I'm like, Hey, that's from Indianapolis. And he's like, yeah. And it turned out this group had been to who knows how many shows on the tour. I'm assuming they were, uh, you know, pass holders of that. They, I think I said they were, but yeah. Yeah. I think we saw by the time we were standing in line, I think we saw a Metallica shirt from at least an event shirt from every time zone in the States and probably, and definitely some European shirts. And yeah. you know, the, 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 there were definitely folks that had flown into the show. There was absolutely a South American contingent. I saw at least two groups of people that were wrapped in Colombian flag colors. Right. I think there, there, were, there was a distinctly Swedish accent about three or four seats to our left. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> there was. And a lot of Spanish being spoken, a couple of rows in front of us. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a lot of it was a lot of a lot of people had traveled for this show, and and amazingly too, the other thing is that you know we, we were both rightfully worried about being able to get into the arena on time yes. because this was the opening night for this brand new 
luxurious arena in the middle of downtown San Francisco. And we had every reason to think it was going to be a total nightmare getting in and out of it. And it must be yeah, opening night, opening nights at new places can be an absolute fiasco. So smooth. And yeah, we were inside. We got in line and we were inside in less than 15 minutes and the, the the shakedown was or like the security check was was thorough but it was hardly intrusive and uh you know it was kind of you know n not unlike the sort of um you know what, what you would get at a normal arena and i think our sense was that they were over prepared for opening night in a good way you know to where it just went so i mean we got dropped off basically at the front door waltzed right through and then even, you know, when, it, you know, we were both hungry at that point and it's like, okay, we got to get some crappy concession food. And I, I get in line, uh, you know, as, as a, a plant-based person, expect, you know, fully expecting to get like a pretzel and French fries or something. And I walked away with butternut squash and kale tacos. <laughs> Right. That, that there was one person in line in front of me. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. just that they had everything. Everything was not running like I mean, everything was running smoothly. We, I mean, there was the, the lines for food and beer were moving and moving quickly. I mean, the, the, the merchandise lines were all the way around the corner. By the time we got in, we were some of the, the first people in the arena. But so I think they, they were a little short on the on the merch tables. But I think even they might have underestimated how much people like I can't imagine what the per head amount was on merch that night, but it had to have been huge. Brand new arena. Um, it's, it's a basketball, it's basketball and concerts. They don't have a hockey team there. And that's an important thing to mention because that means that the floor area can be a little smaller and the stands are a little closer to the floor and they, they're, they're kind of, it's a steeper gradient. So things are a little more compact and stacked a little higher. The capacity is about 16,000, which is small for a new arena. But it's 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 kind of just a smaller scale overall. The arena, the halls were a little narrower, and a lot of that was because there's a lot of kind of secret clubs and nooks and crannies and upgrade clubs and VIP areas and things like that. And you can see where they've carved out the room in in the walls to do that. But in general, it's it's the actual halls and restrooms and the seating area, it's actually surprisingly Spartan when you look at it up close. I mean, it's luxurious, but when you actually take a really good look at it, it's surprisingly Spartan. So if people go completely crazy, there's really not that much to break. So, um, <laughs> yeah. but it was, um, the, the arena was very dark inside the, uh, they went with like a, a very, very dark blue for the seats. So it was very uh, comforting to the eye and it just, um, the, the acoustics, were excellent. There was baffling on the ceiling. I, I, I know that they'd been doing production rehearsals at the Cow Palace down the road, uh, but would they had they had definitely taken the time to make sure that the acoustics were were in good shape for the uh, for the show. Every single major first night hiccup that could have happened at a new building didn't happen, and and that includes uh, and that includes the show, which we should probably dive into. Yes, and uh, I should point out that we are not. Uh, being paid by Chase Center <laughs> for this episode. We really just loved the experience. It was smooth and awesome, which is not typical of uh, big venues in my experience. The main thing that I will tell you is if and when you go to see concerts there, park far away and take the Muni, the trolley system. They actually build the Muni fare into the cost of every single ticket that you buy for any event there. And there really is no almost nowhere to park around this place. Yeah, and we just walked right up to the Muni and, and flashed our Metallica tickets. <laughs> they were like, come on yeah. in. Come on yeah. in. And it's and it's you know it's it's a really short ride to uh, the Embarcadero 
uh, Bart Station. Somebody also looked at us and said, "Tattoos and black T-shirts, come on in." <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So it's it's um, do yourself. Yeah, if if and when you do the, uh, do go to events there, definitely park a distance away and take the Muni in because you will save time and money and hassle. So part of the fun of this for us, which. Uh, in some ways, it will be old news to people because, of course, the, the set lists are now readily available. But on the drive up, we were talking about what do we think we're going to hear and what, you know, and comparing and contrasting to 1999, where, you know, clearly they did a lot of stuff that was suited to the arrangement. And then they did some things that were a little more unexpected and more challenging, which was cool. You know, of course, you know, you're going to hear the Symphony Do Ecstasy of Gold. But then we were like, you know, it's been 20 years. We've got you know, three studio records since then. San Anger, Death Magnetic, and Hardwired. Hardwired being, a you know, a double record, basically. Um, it's a lot of material to draw from since then. And then there's, you know, who knows what stuff from the back catalog that didn't get aired in 99 was going to be heard. And, and then, of course, you know, it's also like, well, of course, we're going to hear Ender Sandman. Uh, we're probably going to hear Sad But True, which we actually didn't. Nothing Else Matters seems like a given. You know, there were certain songs. So it was fun to kind of talk about. And both of us being Metallica nerds, uh, Andrew, you had come prepared with notes. You had a, you know, I was driving and you were, you had the notepad out. <laughs> we're like, all right, here, yeah. here, here's, here's some data. And we, we just started talking about it. We, you especially, were pretty right on the money. <laughs> yeah, we actually, it Basically was um, all of it. Yeah, it was actually like when I was having coffee that morning, I actually, you know, I pulled up the old, uh, as the original S&M set lists and, you know, take a look at what, what songs they played and what albums they were on and then figured, okay, how many of these are going to stay and then what else could be added? And so I think, um, you know, I, I correctly said that they would, we would keep, uh, they would keep Cthulhu, uh, Nothing Else Matters, Puppets and Sandman, Outlaw and Memory. Those are the ones that I'd kind of outlaw, that I'd underlined. And then yeah. as far as, Oh, and then, oh, No Leaf Clover also. Yeah, we figured No Leaf Clover not only because it's a great song and not only because it was uh, like that and Minus Human were initially, they were from the Load Reload sessions, but introduced to the world via S&M. But they've been playing No Leaf Clover recently, which was kind of, you know, we took that, you know, hearing that and Outlaw Torn, uh, my favorite song from the Load Reload era, hearing those songs, seeing that they'd been played on that recent European run was like, hmm. Yeah, that was one thing. I went back through the stadium set lists from that tour and seeing, are there any tells? And sure enough, the, the fact that they pulled out Outlaw at the last show, just that to me spoke volumes. And also Memory Remains was back in the set. So, you know, they they had actually, there were a couple of tells from the European tour um, that made the guessing a little bit easier. Um, yeah. But I think when I, when I started looking at the newer stuff, um, I did think that I actually did think that they were going to try to figure a way to like rearrange St. Anger because that's a song that means a lot to James, but I was wrong about that one. But what I did get right from St. Anger from St. Anger is that they uh, did the, they did an acoustic arrangement of all within my hands last year at that acoustic benefit show. And yeah. I thought that they might actually bring that one in. Yeah. And they actually first introduced that closer to like the death magnetic era at and a couple of those bridge school benefits. Oh, was it? Okay. And, yeah. uh, and those were, you know, that honestly, St. Anger's a, you know, we all have our own unique relationship to St. Anger. Yes. Uh, I can't say that I break it out and listen to it, but when they play frantic live, I appreciate it. And there's, there's moments of it that I appreciate, but all within my hands was the first song 
in that acoustic arrangement, I want to say it was 2007, the Bridge School thing, that was the first time where I was like, this song's amazing. I love this song. And it was really hearing it in that format that turned me on to it. So, yeah, I was I was pretty happy to hear that again at SNM2. I thought it was one of the highlights of the night. And, and the uh, fact that they named their charity foundation after it, you know, that, that was too. a little bit of a I figured that, was, that, that also certainly didn't hurt it. Um, and then from uh, Death Magnetic, I was thinking that um, because it's an instrumental, I was kind of hoping for suicide and redemption. Yeah, uh, been And then I did correctly predict Unforgiven 3 and Day That Never Comes. Um, yeah, and, and I was yeah. I was surprised about Unforgiven 3, but as you, which, I, which is a song I love, uh, as you rightly pointed out, that whole intro is already right there. What neither of us could have predicted, which was really cool, is that they went, you know, Frank Sinatra, just James Hetfield, no guitar, and the orchestra, uh, which was super moving and incredible, especially given, you know, how personal those lyrics are. And uh, that was a unexpectedly intimate, grandiose moment of the set that uh, may have even, well... I don't know if I'd say it was my it was my number one highlight, but it was a highlight for me. That that segment of the show was definitely my favorite part. And then for um, <clears throat> Hardwired, we both thought that now that we're dead was going to be a given, especially because you have a percussion section in the orchestra. Yeah, you have a percussion and, section that that some of the band members participate in, besides Lars. So you so you think, okay, there's going to be a big product, uh, percussion moment with that song. And yeah, I was kind of surprised that we didn't use a song that would work. But as it turns out, they didn't use that. But we did correctly call uh, Moth into Flame and Halo on Fire, but none of us got confusion, which might have been the... the no, like, that, was, that, that, was, that was kind of a Dark Horse uh, yeah. surprise, yeah, in terms and so, of uh, the hardware stuff. But I, I, I had thought that maybe they would have... I, I was a little surprised that they did not go for Orion to Live Is To Die or Suicide and Redemption. I thought that at least one more of the, uh, of like, you know, the eight to ten minute instrumentals would have gotten pulled out. I was a little surprised that they didn't, but by the time the show was over, I was like, okay, well, they actually came up with, um, you know, two sets and, and almost three hours of material without that. You know, yeah, they certainly could have taken one of those instrumentals that you mentioned and maybe swapped it out with, for Cthulhu since they did Cthulhu last time. But I will say the one instrumental from the one record that they did, which was the only song from that record and the only other instrumental from the Metallica back catalog, which was a huge surprise, was Anesthesia. Not only was it a huge surprise that they played it, but the way they performed it, who they performed it with, and all of that was was uh, crazy and awesome. Yeah, they brought the lead cellist uh, from the San Francisco Orchestra. It was a guy named uh, Scott Pingle, who is the principal bassist of the San Francisco Symphony. And they brought him up onto the actual stage next to Lars's drum kit and sat him down with an electric cello. And he did Anesthesia not just the original version. He did all of it, but he added his own bits. And then uh, Lars you know, joined in halfway through the way he normally does. But he really, really took it uh, to some, 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 some corners that you can't necessarily do with a four-string electric bass. And it was, yeah. um, it was probably, I mean, it knocked everybody out. It was the highlight of the night. Um, yeah, and Edfield said something about Cliff from the stage. You know, he would have loved to be, to be here. I know he's here in spirit. And yeah, certainly given his immense musicality and his diverse taste that uh, far outpaced the rest of his bandmates at such a young age when, you know, everyone was still very metal and, and rock focused and, you know, Cliff was listening to Simon and Garfunkel and all this sort of stuff, you know, I mean, definitely doing something like playing with, you know, uh, several episodes ago, I had Cliff's big sister 
Connie Burton on the show and even talking to her about, you know, their childhood and early musical discoveries and stuff like that. It just, you can't deny how much Cliff in particular would have loved something like these S&M shows. And of course, Ray Burton was there representing yeah. for the Cliff legacy. Yes, he was. And uh, that was, uh, that, that was uh, very, very cool to see that. I, did, I, I guess we didn't see him at the show, but he was certainly up the, uh, they, they posted about it the day before, the day after. And you and I were trying to figure out on the way back, you know, when and where and in what formats they had done anesthesia before. Because my recollection was that, you know, given that Newstead played with the pick, given how soon he was in the band after Cliff's untimely passing, that they just sort of didn't touch. Uh, you know, Jason would work, of course, uh, for whom the bell tolls, that little Cliff moment, which actually predates Cliff's time in Metallica. A fact I only very recently learned. You know, the, he would do that, but... You know, they 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 kind of it was like anesthesia was kind of hollowed ground that they stayed away from, as was Orion for a long time. And then you know, with Robert in the band and his and a lot more time having had passed, and Metallica becoming more comfortable uh, with their legacy overall and that sort of thing. You know, they've gone back towards that in these wonderful Cliff tribute moments. I remember seeing them do Master Master of Puppets from front to back at Donington in two thousand six. I was over there with the guys from Throwdown, who I manage. Uh, you know, they they got to play that year, and you know, all the guys in the band, also bleeding through, who I worked with at the time, all the guys in both bands, guys and girl, went back home. But Dave Peters, the singer for Throwdown, and myself stayed the extra couple of days so we could make sure we saw Metallica and also Tool, who's Dave's favorite band ever. Uh, anyway, it was a great year uh, at the Download Festival, but yet they were doing the anniversary front to back. Master of Puppets, uh, which I learned through doing this podcast, was inspired by Dream Theater doing that. When I had Mike Portnoy on the podcast, oh, nice. uh, he talked about Dream Theater doing Master of Puppets and doing, uh, you know, start to finish kind of stuff. And Lars telling him that that was one of the things that sparked the idea of doing one of those full album presentations. But anyway, they did Orion there and it was just a big a big Cliff moment and, you know, Cliff's image coming up on screen and all that sort of thing. So you and I were, were kind of scratching our heads going, man, when's the last time they brought out anesthesia? And when, when's the last time that they did the full version where the drums kick in? And you, uh, you did a little homework on that after the fact, right? And what, what did you Yeah, say? it was like my guess after the show was that I said, okay, like it may be that the last, um, the last one that, I'm, that I feel like I'm reasonably sure about would have been Cliff's final show uh, in Stockholm in 1980, and it was in September in September of '86. But I'm thinking I felt like at some point there there had to be another version in there somewhere, and sure enough, there was. Um, June 8, 2013, at the Orion Festival in Michigan, when they did all of Kill 'Em All. Yes, um, and I uh, apparently I've seen Metallica so many times that that didn't immediately come to my memory until you mentioned it. But after the fact. Uh, not only did they play it there, but I was there. <laughs> was, uh, front and center, uh, very close to the tiny little stage where they did the Kill em All set. It was pretty amazing because, uh, and I think I've told this story on the podcast before, so I'll keep it brief, but I was at Orion Fest that year with Dillinger Escape Plan, who I was uh, managing at the time, and the band All Shell Parish, who I was managing at the time. They were both on the festival, which was a dream come true for me, obviously. So, of course, I went out there to hang out with both bands and experience the whole festival. And, yeah, even we didn't know, uh, as, you know, 
as manager for two of the acts on the festival, we didn't know that the Kill 'Em All thing was happening. They billed it as Dehan, which was named after Dane Dehan, the kid from the uh, that's in the through the Never movie in the narrative parts. Uh, and that was just on the bill, very low on the bill, early in the day, you know, afternoon, smaller stage. And as we were just getting to the venue, people were kind of running in that direction. And we hear, yeah, Metallica is actually, that's Dihon, and they're doing Kill Em All front to back. And, uh, yeah, it was just incredible. You know, me and the, the, the Dillinger guys and myself, most of the Dillinger guys and I uh, got really close and watched the whole thing. And it was fucking great. <laughs> it was oh, I can only really killer. And, yeah. and as they always do, they, of course, release that for download. Uh, yes. so you can you can go get that from them anytime. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was it was killer and a lot of fun to be able to see that. Also of note, I don't know if I've if I've told you this before, because we'd seen that Kill 'em All set and it was so killer, if you'll forgive the pun, and because I've seen Metallica so many times and just was loving the experience so much, when Metallica did their actual closing, big headlining, big production, two hour plus set at Orion that year. I didn't watch them directly. I stood with Greg from Dillinger, who's a massive Metallica fan like you and I are, and we played the Metallica pinball machine as Metallica played off in the distance. Nice. <laughs> so that's, and that honestly, that's a great memory. It's almost as good of a memory as, as uh, any other time that I've seen them. Very cool. So I think what, 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 what maybe I'm thinking we could do at this point is circle back and actually do a quick run through the yes. set list. Cause you people, read my mind. I actually yeah. got it open, and, up, uh, open up in front I, of me for that, for that very purpose. I, um, I, I think you'd mentioned earlier that, you know, this, uh, they, they went with a setup that was in the round, which is kind of par for the course for them for arena shows now. But the difference with this stage is that it was not raised up six feet with a barrier the way that it normally is. Um, this was a stage that was maybe couple feet off the ground on a square platform that was maybe one foot. So, um, you know, they'd listened to, they'd listed a start time of eight o'clock, which obviously wasn't going to happen right at eight o'clock, but at about eight 15, they dimmed the house lights about halfway to kind of give everyone a, Hey, get moving to your seats type of thing. And say by about eight 30, eight 25, eight 30, one by one, or, you know, two by two, you started seeing, uh, musicians from the orchestra walking out and taking their places. And they took a solid 15 to 20 minutes to get there. And there's, I think there were something like 75 people in the orchestra. So they really took their time and it was a way to really get everybody in and settled and in the mood. And, you know, it was, they were playing, uh, you know, old school ACDC and things like that, but they weren't blaring it at top volume. No, they and, weren't. And they also very significantly did not give everyone the five minute warning by playing. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Um, uh, cause that's normally the, we're about to come on, get in here song. But, um, Eventually, about uh, about 8:45, uh, the, the lights went down and the symphony, on their own, um, opened up with um, "Ecstasy of Gold," the the, the Morricone cover, which is you know um, a, re a repeat of how uh, the original S&M started. And then they yeah, of course, uh, and their intro song for years and years and years and years now, the theme from correct. classic western, "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," which I've been I've recently been hearing a sort of elect electronica bass drum and bass loop version of that in some like beer commercial recently <laughs> like, oh, which, which is weird to hear it because as a you know bit of a cinephile and a massive metallica fan i've got those two big associations yeah. with that song whenever i hear it and then to hear it in this third context is kind of jarring whenever it happens 
Yeah, I, I'm sure the I'm sure the publishers of the Morricone catalog are perfectly fine with it, though. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so, um, but they um, they they opened uh, um, almost a little bit expectedly with Call of Cthulhu, which was just a great choice because I think of all uh, of all the Metallica instrumentals, I think this is the one that lends itself best to a classical arrangement. And yeah, um, that's a key, that, that is a very keen restatement of the obvious. Just you know. Um, well, and, 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 and speaking of publishers, I'm sure Dave Mustaine is pretty happy that that made it into SNM2, which will be a film and a release and all of that, because that's uh, not only a Mustaine co-write, but a significant portion of that song, uh, back when it was called uh, Hell Freezes Over, is Mustaine's. And Mustaine has rather generously, all things considered, um, talked about how much he likes what they added to the song without him, Uh, the whole kind of middle section. And he's, he's a fan of how the whole thing came together. And he he's gonna get paid from that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, was, and really, the only technical thing that uh, like, and, and I don't even want to like, you know, give it too much credence by even calling it a snafu. But something with James's electronic rig happened to kind of right at the beginning of Cthulhu, where yeah. he had to basically like for the like somewhere during about the first minute of the song, he mostly had to stand in place while a tech either either taped something or rewired something. It was dark, but he had to stay in place for maybe 30, 40 seconds while he got it done. He didn't look very happy about it, which is quite understandable given all the pressure of an evening like that, given that it's being, you know, shot for a film, that it's its 20th anniversary, that the whole symphony's there, that it's unfamiliar territory to a large degree. It's the first night of the thing. And you're the singer and guitar player, front person of the band to have your shit not working right during that first song. Uh, had to be super frustrating, but it was a little concerning being in the audience. And I immediately had a flashback to, you know, I had the opportunity with my buddy, Josh Bernstein who has been on the podcast. We were in the audience at the Grammys for the infamous uh, moment where Laverne Cox forgot to introduce Metallica in her introduction of Lady Gaga and then Hetfield's microphone, someone forgot to turn on. I immediately was kind of flashing back because it's like, oh no, I, you know, I don't want Hetfield to have a bad night because then everyone has a bad night. You know, it's a lot riding on him. And I would imagine, given that they did two nights, you know, night two is a bit of a mulligan in the sense that they get to pick and choose from both sets in terms of whatever they use for the film. So I have a feeling, and rightfully so, that this moment we're describing here on the podcast will not be visible (laughs) in uh, future viewings of the show. And at that point, there was so much happening visually because it was the you know it was still the first minute or so of the show. So yeah, I think plenty to cut around. I mean, I mean, maybe we saw it, but I bet you, I don't know, I don't know if seventy five percent of the crowd did. Yeah, and luckily he you know made a pretty quick recovery from whatever that technical difficulty was and had a great night. I think they all they all had a great night. They all played super well, and more importantly, I think they all seemed to be having fun. The orchestra I felt during the uh, the first song or two was was really loud in the mix and i think that they yeah. they, they were um the, by the, by the third song they'd kind of kind of even things out a bit but it was it, it was in a weird way it was kind of neat to be that just overwhelmed by everything yeah i agree and it, it really was just like oh my you know th- this is like um just you know you know metallica on its own is generally fairly like you know str- it, it's in your face music where and especially live with with their volume um you know it tends to come at you pretty heavily but this was one where all of a sudden there's like 75 people out there with them too playing all this stuff and it really was um fun to be just um overwhelmed by that and it was a great start um 
And they went straight into, they did back-to-back Ride the Lightning songs. Uh, they went straight into For Whom the Bell Tolls early. And I thought that was, um, I that's one of my all-time favorite songs. And I was thrilled. And, and you could almost feel the band sort of loosen up, too, because that's such familiar territory for them. And it's kind of like, all right, we made it through. <laughs> we, made, yeah. we made it through the big symphonic instrumental. And now we're, you know, we're just delivering the goods like we always do. I will say also around this moment maybe a few more songs in i you know you one of the things you and i had discussed on the way up and this is just supreme super fan nitpicking because i love the original snm top to bottom you know wouldn't would hardly change a thing one of my only minor complaints with it is i felt that some of the parts that were composed for the symphony were a bit too busy that rather mm-hmm. than kind of just naturally sort of augmenting and serving the song in various places that there were a lot of moments that were like, all right, here's the symphony part because the symphony's here and we wrote a whole separate part for it. And I felt like, and, and you know, time will tell when the professional mix comes out and I can really sit with it and absorb it. But being there in the moment, I felt like that was dialed back a little bit this time and that the symphony really was enhancing the songs in a way that I that I would have wanted them to. I thought that the balance between the band and the what was happening with the symphony was a lot, uh, a lot more pleasant. Yeah, I think it was, it felt like, and I think especially as the show, as, as you got into the show, it felt more and more like it was a collaboration, especially when you yeah. get into the second set. And uh, well, actually that's, an, and that's another big thing we should mention is that this was very unusual and that the Metallica split the show in half and did two sets, which I've been, right. um, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of bands with big catalogs doing that. And yeah, there was so an I was yeah. thrilled to death that they did that because you can really on to, you know, uh, alter the, con- it's like two, Many concerts where you can alter the content and contour to really give two distinct yeah, and, and uh, the dynamics with the different moods and tempos and everything really yeah. have an opportunity to to mess with that as well. After Bells was uh, the first Death Magnetic song, which was yeah, the, the first, first surprise the night. Ever comes. This was the first song of the night that was not a repeat from the the, the original, yeah. and so I think, and this was the first one that I think, um, and again. I haven't heard anything since the first night, uh, since we actually heard it, but I think your take that the orchestra tended to be a little less busier with their arrangements, um, um, that, and, you know, cause this is a song that really gets moving by the end. So if you're not careful, it can get to be a little too much, but I thought the way that they added to this and the way that they kind of like kind of sped up, slowed down and the way that they sort of counterpointed things, I, I thought it was extremely effective. Totally agreed. And then from that, we went into The Memory Remains, which I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I will say I unabashedly have always loved that song from the jump and was, uh, you know, had fully embraced the load reload era uh, by the time that that video, which was super cool, was making the rounds. But with that being said, for the swath of Metallica fans who uh, haven't embraced that era even to this day, I think a lot of them would have to admit that and this is kind of the way I feel about Fuel, which isn't a song that I necessarily love, but live in terms of shaking up the dynamics and then with memory with the uh, with that massive sing-along and all of that. Like, even if you weren't totally down with that era and you weren't down with some of these songs, you can't deny how great they are peppered into a set like this. At the very least, you got, you know, you got to admit when Bruce Dickinson sings those Blaze Bailey era songs as part of an overall Maiden Greatest Hits set, 
they're pretty awesome. They are, and and yeah, and and Memory Remains is, is absolutely one of the songs on the catalog that le- that best lends itself to uh, this format where you have you know, all these other people playing along because there's yeah. there's plenty of room for them. And so yeah, that was that was effective. And then uh, one of the really big curveballs of the night, uh, it was I guess the rest of the set was uh, three like three of the last five songs of the set were was was the newest stuff. And the first one yeah. was Confusion, which. I didn't see that one coming. I'm not sure anyone else did either. For me, I was just almost so surprised that they were taking it. I was just kind of just kind of just taking it all in and just being like, "Wow, what are they doing?" You know? Um, yeah, they were showing clips from the music video, which I think a lot of people probably weren't as familiar with that footage, which is cool uh, because yeah. you know when they put out Hardwired, they did the thing where they released a video for every single song simultaneously. Some of them are just narrative without the band. You know, the, the Lenny song, Murder One, is animated. Uh, some have the band. You know, uh, Man Unkind was shot during rehearsals for Lords of Chaos. <laughs> so it's actually actors dressed up as Mayhem playing Metallica. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really cool. But, you know, I, I don't know that everyone absorbed all of those videos, or at least in the same way that, you know, videos that we all grew up seeing on MTV right. and so on from Metallica. So to see that that narrative footage get kind of a second chance in the live setting, I think is cool that they make, they make great use of that. And a lot of the, uh, the animations and the various things that they have going for different songs, I think are, are really cool. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, they, they did a great job with that stuff. And it was nice that, that, you know, it's fun that, that, uh, the band has, has the ability and the wherewithal and the ability to dial up, you know, you know, however many different video directors they had to each make one of those. That was really, um, yeah, that, that was neat that they were able to do that. Cause I mean, I know, um, in, you know, in a previous century when you would be watching, you know, pretty much your source of videos was MTV and that was that part of it was you'd have to sit there with your friends and you'd have to wait for the one that you wanted outside yeah. of say Headbangers Ball. And so even, even Headbangers to- Ball, if you were a thrash metal person, uh, or a punk, you know, it was three hours to get three or four videos. <laughs> I remember I used, to right. ta- I used to tape it on VHS just to fast forward to like the Testament video. <laughs> right. And, and, and with, and when, and during the mainstream hours, uh, you know, you'd be, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to wait a while. And so you'd sit, you'd sit there with your friends and just sit there and just badmouth everything else that you, that, that, that wasn't the yeah. one you wanted to watch. And, the, and we, so, we, were, um, we were real life Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then you know for the for the three to five minutes that the video was happening, you know, I mean, it was just captive audience. Everybody, shut up! You know, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. The dynamic of that has changed, but uh, but yeah. So, Moth into Flame followed that, which was. Um, I remember, um, we were was, both kind of wondering if if a guest was going to show up for that. Uh, you know, I, what, I, I thought there might for yeah. the Grammys uh, to fix it up, but uh, but no, no guests. Right. No guest, and they didn't need it. That was followed by, um, I think we were both in complete agreement that along with Cthulhu, the other highlight of the first set was the Outlaw Torn. I mean, yeah, without a doubt. That's the highlight for me. And uh, I mean, a top 10 Metallica song for me, period. And I've said that on the podcast many times. And it's the song for the the, the haters, the doubters, the ignorers, uh, people who never gave it a chance or should give it a second or third chance. When I'm sending someone to the Metallica of the nineties, even, even those who dropped out before the black album, I send them to outlaw torn first. Uh, that's the song that I, that, that's the go-to when I, I believe someone needs convincing of <laughs> the nineties and Metallica. I'm like, here's the song. Listen to this. Bleeding me is usually yeah. number two. And yeah. And if you're, if you say Metallica wasn't heavy in the nineties and you can't get behind sad, but true, then I, I don't, you know, 
<laughs> I give up at that point. But yeah. but yeah, Outlaw Torn. It's uh, it's such a great song, and and is for me personally, you know, the, the '90s were certainly the era where Hetfield turned inward lyrically, and uh, Outlaw Torn is. I'd be hard pressed to come up with another Metallica song that means as much to me on a personal level from the lyrical standpoint. Uh, so that that was really gratifying to hear in that environment and in that context and to be there with a good friend and to be there with the Metallica family and the opening night of this, you know, that, that was a, that was a goosebump moment for me with that whole song. It was. And I think another thing that, that set the version apart is that the tempo was slightly quicker than it is on the record. Mm, Um, and so, and that was, um, and so it actually, and I was surprised because normally you think with the orchestra, you're going to want to slow it down a little bit and give everybody a chance to breathe, but they sped it up ever so slightly. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like they double timed it or anything like that, but it was certainly just like they, they, they like it felt like they, they cranked up the metronome by like one notch and it yeah. made for a little bit of extra bounce in the song. Not that it needed it, but it was really, it was, it, it was definitely like a fun change and that was good. And then it was uh, from there, it was straight to uh, No Leaf Clover. And as people listening to this may or may not know, uh, and this brings us back to your story about. Metallica getting sick of the studio and busting out a couple of new songs and, and that whole uh, for that warm up show that you went to and how life changing it was for you. Uh, as people may or may not know, Load and Reload were initially conceived as a double album. That was just all the post Black Album stuff, and they were cranking away and cranking away. And then I, at some point, they made the decision to sort of stop and pick out, <laughs> you know, half of the songs and finish them and release that as a record, and then come back to the rest and release them later. So uh, No Leaf Clover and Minus Human, as I mentioned earlier, which were the two songs that were the new songs first played live at the original S&M 20 years ago, those were both from the Load and Reload sessions. And I actually have a studio version. I don't know if it came out as a B-side or if it's, you know, what the origin was necessarily, but I have a studio version of Minus Human without the symphony. What I don't have and have never heard is a studio version of No Leaf Clover. I don't know if you're if you're listening and that's out there and it's around and you know about it, uh, pop in the Speaking to Soroy Facebook group or, you know, hit me on social media or something and let me know because I would love just as a curiosity to hear that. But that's a song that in the original incarnation and in this one lends itself to the orchestra really well because the arrangement is relatively simple and straightforward. So there's a lot of breathing room for, you know, the orchestra to come in and do its thing. I don't think I'd seen it in a live Metallica show and I mean, probably in at least a decade. I feel like it was sort of in the rotation in the, you know, for a year or two after uh, S&M came out. And I feel like it would sort of turn up from time to time after that. But where I was like, oh, wow. OK, this, you know, uh, I mean, it wasn't unexpected because this, you know, this this was certainly a time to bring it back. But it certainly was like, you know, once they flashed the videos of the, the building, uh, you know, up on the video screens, I was like, ah, yes, here we go. Uh, yeah. So but it was it was it was well placed. And, and, and it was a nice bridge between Outlaw Torn and then what turned out to be the set closer, Halo on Fire. Yes, another hardwired song. And for those keeping score, as you mentioned, that's uh, one, two, three hardwired songs in the first yeah, set. Three out of the last five songs were uh, were hardwired. And actually, looking at it now, um, Outlaw Torn was actually the oldest tune of the last half of the set. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, actually as a matter of fact, I'm even looking back further. After, uh, after For Whom the Bells Toll, everything was from Load or Afterwards. 
And you know what's also interesting, given that it is the largest record in their catalog and the largest selling record of the SoundScan era since they started counting record sales with SoundScan, the Black Album, we didn't hear anything from the Black Album in the first set. And then we didn't, and, and we continued not to hear anything uh, until even San Anger had gotten its due. And, then that, and that's oh. kind of interesting considering, you know, how much a part of every Metallica show the Black Album has been and continues to be since its release. Yeah. And then, and also after they opened with Ecstasy, they did Cthulhu and Bells from Ride the Lightning and didn't touch the album again for the rest of the night. Oh, and wow. So yeah, it was, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just the two. And then it was, yeah. it was kind of um, all 90s and, and aughts and, and, and 21st century stuff. And then at the end of Halo on Fire, they said, okay, we're going to take an intermission. We'll be back in a little bit. And they kind of walked back off. And the uh, video screens that were above the band, it was kind of four rings like 360 degree rings that were of various sizes that had uh the video their, their, their video projections on them and they had the two larger rings had uh projections on both the inside and the outside of the circle so people sitting under them would be able to look up and see them but as the band once the band was safely in the back uh they put up they started a, a 20 minute intermission countdown clock on uh on, on, on their, uh, on, on the scoreboard or on the video screens. So, you know, people dashed out of the hall, stretched their legs, whatever. And then at the end of 20 minutes, that's when they actually started having the orchestra walk back out. And this time it was a much quicker walkout. They were probably all seated within, you know, like, you know, eight to 10 minutes. And then they dimmed the lights and Lars came out and instead of, um, I guess he, he, he took the mic and, you know, normally he will talk to the crowd at the end of the show. Um, but this time he talked in the middle and he said, okay, thank you, Metallica fans. Thank you, Warriors fans. Thank you, Symphony fans. This is, uh, we're, we're very happy to be doing this. Uh, and it seemed appropriate in that point in the set too, given that he's now the most San Franciscan of the San Francisco representative. Yeah. You know, that I think Kirk spends a lot of time in Hawaii these days. Uh, Trujillo is a, Southern California guy and Hetfield has moved away from the Bay area in recent years, you know, it, it made the most sense to have Lars come out and be the guy that talks about, you know, what a great moment this is for San Francisco. <laughs> he was always the Bohemian, uh, you know, kid with the European parents from, from day one. And so, yeah, it made complete sense, but it was, um, it was, it, you know, um, yeah, I think he did actually drop, one F-bomb during his little talk. But aside from that, one other thing that we noticed the entire night, no swearing. Right. Which is, which Not is even really during, yeah. I mean, James, James has a few F-bombs that he likes to drop into various lyrics, Master of Puppets being one yeah. of the big ones. Creeping creep, Death, which wasn't played. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. Um, there were, there was, aside from that, there was no swearing from the stage and, and it was, and they were, I, I guess, I don't know if I want to call it on their best behavior. I guess it, you don't necessarily want to play with the symphony and have the crowd chanting, die, motherfucker, die. <laughs> no, no, that, that's um, probably. Which, by the way, is one of the times, no disrespect to Rob, because Rob is amazing. Uh, but that is one of the moments where when I, I truly miss Newstead is I just, I used to love Newstead yeah. screaming those motherfuckers. Oh, yes. Yeah, he was, it was amazing. Yeah. And props to that. Absolutely. And then after Lars finished talking, uh, it got like the, the, for me, it was surprising. They actually, um, Michael Tilson Thomas came out, who is the director of the San Francisco Symphony. And he actually talked to the crowd for a little bit. He took, and, us, he took us to school, which I think, you yeah, know, he did. one of the things I, I was going to say is what a formidable 
challenge that was in front of the band, in addition to all the obvious things about playing with the symphony and playing with the symphony again 20 years later and so on, in assembling a set list that hits all the right notes, plays songs that, that they have to play, that, you, that they know everyone's going to want to hear, your inner Sandman's and so on, but also that makes them stoked, that they're interested in it and is exciting and does new things and has surprises that we didn't have last time. I mean, there's an awful lot they had to accomplish, and the fact that they did so so magnificently is amazing. But to this part that you're about to get into here, another great achievement is that they got all of us Metallica fans to politely and mostly enthusiastically listen to a lecture about classical music. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's yeah, what happened was, next. Yeah, yeah he, all of a sudden, you know, he was talking about we're going to open with uh, uh, the band's going to open with, uh, with with something that we haven't, you know, uh, that the Metallica hasn't played before, and it was um, City and Sweet's second movement from a Russian composer, <laughs> uh, the Russian composer Sergei uh, uh, Prokofiev, and yeah. we got about like probably like a close to about a one minute introduction that talked about uh, that it's early twentieth century. Uh, Russian primitivist symphony. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I remember he was talking and, and you could see like all the classical folks. I mean, this is the symphony folks were just eating this up and you yeah. could see the Metallica folks were like, were listening. And, and it was one of those things where the guy timed it just perfectly. Like if he'd gone for 15 seconds longer, <laughs> yeah. um, he got, he got away with just about as much of, of an explanation as he could get without somebody howling at him. And, and but it was, and, and when the, the orchestra played it, it was, um, yeah, it was like a, you know, a three to four minute, uh, it served as a, the equivalent, like the equivalent of what ecstasy of gold was in the first set. It was an intro, uh, the second set, but it was kind of like darker and kind of a little boomier and, and definitely in, in a minor key. And, um, I don't claim to be an expert on this and, I, and I've never, I don't think I'd ever heard the piece prior to this, but it certainly set a really, really good mood. And it felt, it set like a more kind of like a darker tone. Uh, for the second set. Yeah, and, and it's really uh, something that you couldn't, you know, as you're as you're talking about it, it, it occurs to me, uh, you know, to your point about breaking the show up into two sets, I don't think that that's something you could have gotten away with otherwise. Like, where would you have put that in just a traditional set format? Whereas opening a second half after an intermission with that was just like, Pretty magical worked out awesome yeah it was i mean it was it was it was a great it, it was it was a great idea and it was also great to just reach deep into the bag now maybe i mean i am not an expert in classical music but this was not something that i'd ever even heard of before yeah and it wasn't so like okay now we're gonna do beethoven's fifth you know <laughs> like it wasn't uh yeah it it, it it seemed like a it seemed like a deep cut but you know yeah if any if any classical musical listeners are listening to this and are laughing at us god bless but uh but yeah it seemed uh it seemed like a deep in the bag pole as you said which then leads us right into the next song which did we should mention that last one was just the symphony uh the next song metallica participated in and that was iron foundry Yes, and this was also another, I believe it was, uh, they introduced this one too, a slightly shorter intro. Uh, this was uh, uh, composed by Alexander Mosolov, and I believe it was another early Russian 20th century primitivist song. And it was, I'd say probably ran like, what, like like maybe four and a half to five and a half minutes. It was and really cool, and they had a lot of cool, great accompanying visuals that were very sort of Soviet propaganda uh, workers, yeah. you know, hammer, hammering things. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it was, it'll be. I mean, it, it, I mean, it was. It was. There, there was. A, there, there was some discordance. It was noisy. It was loud, and it was really, really. I mean, it was. It, it, it definitely the two. Uh, these two songs together made for a really, really cool opening of the second set, and it definitely set kind of a, a darker minor key kind of mood. And you know, Iron Iron Foundry really had a in a you know it, it almost in a subversive sort of way to me felt like it was paying homage to another part of San Francisco culture and identity, which is the gay dance club scene, uh, you know, cause it had like this, this footage of these, you know, muscular men doing <laughs> manly things that were sort of faceless and formless a little bit. And then, and then you have this like really driving percussive sort of industrial night, almost leather bar vibe uh, that, you know, maybe some members of Metallica wouldn't be that excited to hear me point out and other members would be more excited <laughs> to hear me point out, but it's, but it, it felt like yet another facet of San Francisco that was getting its due in this evening of cultural celebration. And I thought that was Ooh. really cool. Good take. Yeah, totally. I hadn't, I actually had not, had not put those two things together, but absolutely. Yeah. And then this led us into a moment we've touched on, which was just pop ahead with the symphony for one of my favorite deep cuts on Forgiven Three. And uh, another song I love lyrically and, and a song that, that lends itself to this format so well because it is very expansive and epic and, and symphonic already. And when we say just James, that is James without his guitar. He, he actually took his guitar off and was only singing and Kirk, Robert and Lars all walked off the stage. So it was only James uh, with no guitar and the uh, and, and, and the, the symphony. And it was coming on the heels of the two Russian songs. It was a really, really effective choice. And they did a really, really nice job with it. The first half of the second set was for me the, the real highlight of the night. And this was one where, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Russian tunes set the tone. And then this one really was the one where they stepped into like the, into the deeper water and really allowed yeah. James to get into it. And this was one where it was also to, to just, um, it was, an, you know, one of the opportunities where the orchestra really got a chance to shine all by themselves, uh, you know, with, yeah. you know with, just the, with just the vocals. So they really, and, and it really created at this point, there was a, uh, a very like, serious i guess vibe in the room it was uh, there, there was that was not there during the first set and i thought I that mean, it the orchestra was, even um, mimicked the guitar solo for that song you know i mean yes. it, i mean it was i mean they did everything you know it was and it, it came off fantastic and yeah i think you make a, a great point about the these this sort of uh triptych of songs those first three opening the second set really all kind of fed into one another and yeah deep water is a great way to put it it definitely felt like they had they had unlocked a way to pay homage to what they did 20 years ago, work in new songs, and yet still give us something that was new and challenging and, and captivating. And it also sort of made me think those first two or three songs, you know, this is the Metallica of Lulu on its best day. You know, Lulu being a bit of a misfire in terms of uh, being something that's listenable. This struck me more as kind of like, okay, these... This is coming from that same spirit, though, that same place. And what's great about that kind of creative risk-taking is sometimes it doesn't work uh, like Lulu. And sometimes it's fucking excellent and a, a masterpiece and, and a whole new discovery. And I think that's that's what they achieved uh, with this, you know, first section of of the second set. 
you know, and this time this this was a collaboration, and you know, um, they went they went to the professionals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, <true. laughs> and and I think there, there there seemed to be a real meeting of the minds between uh, t- uh, Michael Tilson Thomas and Lars Ulrich, assuming those are the guys that were sitting up late and drinking wine and talking about this stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, and Lars is kind of the master of the set list, which I would imagine there's there's some more input from everybody for something this uh, ambitious. But yeah, I, I, I like you, I would I would picture him being the one kicking this stuff around. You know, there, there was a definite vibe by the end of Unforgiven 3, and they continued it because then then he moved into the acoustic uh, song of the show. They did the acoustic version of All Within My Hands, which, you know, stretches out to eight or nine minutes and was just at, – at, and you know, everyone was on acoustic instruments. And they also brought up a guy named uh, Avi Vinicor, who is a San Francisco-based uh, singer and musician who has guested as a Metallica vocalist during acoustic shows in the past. And so – he, but he was helping with the backing vocals just to help uh, to help fill things out. And yeah, and sounded great. It was, it was um, again, it was just it felt like the flow from Unforgiven Three into All Within My Hands was just again a very natural progression. It was two straight songs that were of a slightly slower tempo, but this one you know had had drums and you know it was like, you know and it was more of a traditional rock and roll song in an acoustic way uh, in an acoustic uh, setting, but it definitely continued this sort of it continued the vibe that was that that had been set the crowd was also during songs was generally being very quiet and very attentive and so yeah. during this entire area you know you know no you know nobody was yelling and screaming where all of a sudden people had to turn around and shush people i mean people were really paying attention and the band was actually was sucking people in and keeping them there i mean it was uh it really was it really was unusual just given how crazy that you know, this band can get. And so it was neat to see that after all within my hands, and we, we've touched on this earlier, but after that was the, the really big surprise and the highlight of the night for, I think most of us, uh, when they busted out anesthesia with, uh, Scott Pingle, the principal bassist from the symphony who did the entire solo on an electric cello or electric bass. And you know what I'm so, realizing now looking at the set list and as we're talking about it, and as you're very accurately describing the, the vibe and environment for this second set. We're now five songs deep into the second set and not one of them appeared in the 1999 show. Right. I mean, that's yeah already just, I mean, wow. You know, <laughs> that's, yeah. and, and, and if you include Halo, you know, closing out the first set, that's now what, six songs in a row that are uh, brand new. In terms of this, this was just a fantastic run of five songs, and I think it was also too is that uh, you could see the people from the orchestra digging that their guy was up there just killing it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and at that point, you know, people were like up and yelling and screaming, and I think at that point, you know, it, everything just, especially when the drums kicked in, it, it started to look and sound a little bit like more like a normal Metallica crowd because it got louder and it got yelling. You know, people. You know, there there were people headbanging, and but it was just a genuinely exciting moment and you know you know james you know gently paid tribute to cliff before they played it and it just and then by the time they got into it you know this guy just blew everybody away because he played it you know he he played all of the solo but he added other parts to it and did some really really you know some strange things with the bow and some string bending and whatever sort of magic tricks that somebody like this can do. And it really was just, um, you know, it was, it was really brain bending some of the things that he did. And it was just such a great time. And I think the place just blew up when it was over. It was for me, those five songs were the real highlight of the show. And 
the second set and then the rest of the second set was essentially moving back into like doing the greatest hits. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all, all the last five songs were all. So, so I think hits, like yeah. the way, like, like the quick flyover of the last five songs, because I'm guessing like everyone here is hardcore metallic who is listening to this. Um, you had wherever I may roam one master of puppets, nothing else matters and enter Sandman. So nothing that was truly nothing that's a, a surprise. But with that being said, uh, with Rome and one, even though those were predictable songs that we knew we were going to hear, they each had unpredictable elements in their introductions. Kicking off with wherever I may roam and Kirk on a real life <laughs> sitar playing that intro, yeah. uh, as opposed yeah, to, yeah. you know, the pre-taped version from the record. It was uh, live and in person. Like if there's ever a moment to break up the electric sitar and play that little lick, they seized that moment. Yeah, and we were actually lucky in that he was facing us. Yeah, uh, the, the the stage happened to be turned where he was facing us directly, uh, strapping that thing in and, and going for it. And then one, the intro for that was pretty spectacular because rather than the tape, uh, you know, gunfire and bombs exploding and Hetfield yelling, uh, which I always thought sounded a little bit like Sam Kennison, not a diss. Yep. <laughs> uh, they, it, rather than playing that tape, they, I wouldn't even say they recreated it, but more kind of captured the spirit of it with, percussion and instrumentation. Yeah, the, percu the, the percussion section played the intro to one and it was, yeah. it was, you know, it was, you know, it was over a minute. Um, I don't know if it was, it was an exact like note for note recreation, but it certainly did. It did the job and it was absolutely compelling to hear that on timpanis. And yeah. um, they didn't. And one thing that they refrained from all night, there was no pyro. And so there were no explosions or anything right. like that. So it was, um, they don't want to burn anybody's tuxedo tails. <laughs> exactly. And it was, and you know, uh, I just didn't, I feel like post Ariana Grande concert shooting. I feel like, like pyro is just like, that's the sort of thing that just scares people now more than it needs yeah. to. Yeah. So I think, it, I think you're starting to see it phased out, I think in, in big, in big productions, but, but it was a very effective intro. And again, it was one of those things where as soon as the crowd realized what they were doing, everyone just sat there. I was just, just going to say, it was so fun to feel the room gradually come to the realization of what they were hearing and what was happening simultaneously, you know, where you, you could feel people, the electricity in the air of people connecting like, Oh, this is like, this is the intro to one. <laughs> Whoa. Very and, cool. And from the time that James played as the opening guitar riff, the, you know, the, the string section was right there with them. So they were in, uh, they were in on the song from the very beginning. And it was, uh, it was another one where towards the end of the song, it was just fun to just kind of just stop and listen and just get overwhelmed by like, you know, 79 people playing one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally. I mean, it was, it, it was fantastic. And then, you know, the, the last three songs were, were expected and largely stuck to the, you know, the, the initial arrangements uh, that were on uh, S&M. But Master of Puppets, Nothing Else Matters, and Enter Sandman. And this was also, you know, you know, Puppets is an absolute classic. But with Nothing Else Matters and Sandman, one of the things that I appreciated seeing was that you could see that the Symphony folks and the Golden State Warriors season ticket holders, kind of the, the, the slightly more casual fans, these were songs that have become part of the rock and roll FM radio fabric. And right. so these were, these were songs that they knew and they could get into and that were, that, you know, uh, that, that were a lot more accessible. So it was even, you know, for like the hardcore Metallica fans where you know, you're going to see these you know, songs at every show. And, and, you know, sometimes you wish you'd maybe, you know, switch them out with something else. It was nice to see them play. It's always nice to see these, 
the, these biggest songs played at these shows where it's not 100% hardcore Metallica fans. And so it really, yeah. it, it brings everybody under, under, under the roof. And so it was, it really was a lot of fun as Sandman. Uh, once they finished, uh, you and I did the classic venue bolt. <laughs> we did the, the Irish goodbye venue version. Yes. And we were on the first Muni train out and, uh, we we're back at the BART station, maybe 10 minutes later. It was amazing. Yeah, it was just it was getting in and out was extremely easy. We did not stick around for you know the end of show bows because uh, we you know we had to make our way back to Los Angeles. But uh, and I don't know if Lars gave like kind of a closing speech afterwards. But it really was like it was a very special evening. Um, I thought that for as far as opening nights go, as far as the building goes, it went like as far as I can tell near flawlessly. Aside from the little thing with James's guitar in the first song, I thought that the, you know, the performance by both band and orchestra was fantastic. Um, it was a lot of fun. It really felt like an event. Um, uh, you know, there was a real sense of occasion, and the, the band rose to the occasion. The symphony was fantastic, and the crowd was fantastic. And from what I can gather, I didn't see anything posting otherwise where somebody was talking about like a Nate, some, like a, a seat neighbor had ruined the show or anything like that. I thought it no, was just, and, 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 and I want to, I want to go back to that in a second. There's, there's two things I want to mention before we wrap up one. And I want to go back to that, that sort of feeling of community. And, but I, I, but I also wanted to mention something that I would imagine was different about this show. And I'm excited to see as we learn more about the events, if this behind the scenes things and stuff like that start to come out, you know, 20 years ago, there probably weren't many seasoned players in the San Francisco Symphony who were Metallica fans. But I would imagine now, just as a generational thing, that there were likely a lot of men and women in that organization who at some point in their life loved Metallica. You know what I mean? And so yeah. have even a sort of different experience. Or they raised kids who or they raised kids who did. Right. Yeah. But yeah, Metallica, Metallica becomes so so much part of the landscape in the Bay Area now that I, that, that'd be interesting. I wonder if you know if anyone knows the answer to that. You know, yeah, because uh, I would imagine in '99 it, it was a lot more the the uh, you know worlds colliding and right. eyebrows and people not necessarily understanding each other and that being part of the fun of it. But I would imagine now in 2019 that that you have a lot of people who just happen to be you know third chair or viola or whatever that uh, you know also have a Metallica tattoo. You know, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, too, I think Metallica um, are surely now better collaborators than they were in 1999. Ah, that's and a good point so, too. And so, I mean, they're they're 20 years older. They're, these guys are in their 50s now. And things things are, um, you know, this was uh, the, the S&M version of Metallica was before some kind of monster. So, you know, very different, yeah. very different band. And, you know, and so I think um, I would imagine, you know, it's not like they, they weren't gung ho about it at the time, but I would imagine that the, like, you know, the dynamics within the band and the processes by which they were internalizing the music and working with the orchestra, it may have been different, but this felt so much more that like a genuine collaboration. You, you felt that by the end of the first set, but definitely during those, during that five song stretch, at the beginning of the second set, you really, really felt like it was a collaboration where everybody brought something to the table. And it was really a lot of fun to have all that woven together. And to your point about people's experience and kind of bringing us full circle about that Metallica family feeling, and one of the reasons why I appreciate it. Now, of course, no 
fan base is a monolith and certainly metal shows can get violent and rowdy and there can be, uh, you know, jerk offs who will ruin someone else's experience. But, you know, yeah. this particular night and this particular band, you know, people were drinking and having a good time and, and doing their thing, but the vibe was so friendly. There was just so much camaraderie with all the people around us in such a, great feeling of shared experience and shared love and passion. And I can compare it and contrast it with, believe it or not, in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl, going to see The Cure <laughs> and the Pixies and almost getting into a fist fight with three dudes who were standing by me watching The Fucking Cure. And I actually said to them at one point, so what, are we going to brawl during Boys Don't Cry? <laughs> you know, and, and just sort of the uh, you know, there's gonna there's gonna be oh, assholes anywhere, man. but it's just but it's just interesting to me that you know here I'm at this festival that was curated by The Cure, and I just watched the Pixies, and I'm waiting for The Cure to come on, and that there's you know elbowing and and uh, just, uh, male fragility and testosterone cranking <laughs> there, and people who've been drinking oh, all day. Oh, I'm sorry, man. That's, oh, fight. that sucks. I'm sorry. Yeah, it so just, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things, well, it's funny, I, you know, I made this joke to a friend of mine earlier today, but the three different stages of my life when it comes to fighting have been, you know, the first stage where you're young and you're an idiot and nobody really knew how to fight back then anyway, and then the second stage where I didn't want to get into fights at shows because I was afraid of how badly I would be hurt. And now this third stage where I'm afraid of how badly I'll hurt them and I don't want to deal with court cases, arrests, or uh, last but not least, missing the cure. <laughs> so all, there's all, all sorts of reasons as, as, as life goes on of, uh, of reasons uh, to avoid those kind of conflicts. But, but yeah, it's an interesting compare and contrast. And there's no disrespect to the cure. It's one of my favorite bands of all time. And, put on an amazing show that night. But the fact that you can, you're just as, just as easily get into a fist fight with some knuckleheads at a Cure concert, but then to be somewhere like Metallica that might have a reputation for like, oh, it's this loud, heavy, aggressive music and it's going to be all these like murderers who are there to like fight people. And it couldn't have been further from that. It was just such yeah, a, I, I, a fun I can't imagine somebody putting on a Cure record and listening to it going, yeah, man, now I'm going to go knock somebody out. <laughs> yeah. so, somebody's really missing the point. I think it's more, I'm, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in a concert and I'm, I'm sticking out my, it was, it was literally like a territorial, like, uh, you know, uh, the, the crowd moved because somebody left their spot and everybody moved up to get a better spot. And this one guy stepped in front of me. And I pointed out that he stepped in front of me and then, you know, I've challenged his, his fragile masculinity and, and now his buddies are, want to get in on it. And, you know, yeah. none of that yeah. happened at Metallica, dude. Metallica's no, all it love. did not. It did not. But it was, um, but yeah, overall, this was just, um, this was, this, this was a great evening. Uh, I'm glad we got a chance to see it. Um, and it was definitely like, um, and I guess there is going to be a theatrical broadcast of these shows. I guess they're going to take the two yes. shows and edit them down into one first week in October. I can't remember the exact date, but, um, if you are enough of a Metallica nerd that you have listened to the end of this podcast, <laughs> if you've made it this far, end, you either just, already just, know, or you know, how right, to just yeah. go, go buy the tickets and see it because you will enjoy it. It is um, it really was the band rising to the occasion and they did something special and unique. And, um, it was obvious from, from the off that it was going to be, um, that it was going to be something next level. And, and you they, can they go to Metallica.film 
apparently that's a domain that people can buy now. That's pretty awesome. Metallica.film, you can go there and it will show you when and where that film is playing near you. Uh, My computer just rather creepily already knew where I'm at and is showing me uh, a couple October 9th and October 16th, uh, which are Wednesdays. It's showing me a bunch of places here in Orange County, a, a ton of places. Okay. Uh, where, Uniformed uh, where personnel are on their way to your house right now to collect ticket money for you from Indeed. you in advance. Uh, in fact, by, by the way, Andrew, one of the places that you can see that is one of my favorite places in California, which is the Frida, a nonprofit yes. independent cinema in Orange County, where Andrew and I and some other friends of ours saw uh, Murder in the Front Row. And where yes, I... Uh, I celebrated my birthday last year with a screening for some friends of the 1986 classic Trick or Treat. Uh, and we did a bunch of vintage horror trailers and stuff like that beforehand. And I had my daughter's 10th birthday party there. We watched Spider-Man with a bunch of her friends from school. And it's just, it's an amazing place. You can rent it for yeah, a Yeah, we had a great time. It's a non-profit. Yeah, we were with- yeah, we were with uh, Eric German, the the metal lawyer, and his amazing wife Laura. And we so were, was, and, uh, and, and, and yes. much much Metallica was discussed. And uh, we're gonna have to get Eric German on this podcast at some point too. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, but um, yeah, thank you for uh, inviting me on. This was uh, the, thank it, you for inviting me on the show. Yes, it was. Uh, it, it all it all worked out. Um, this has been an absolute blast, and. Um, Thanks to everyone who actually listened to the end. Indeed. Thanks, Andrew, for, co- for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to rate, subscribe, all those fun things that every podcaster is always pe- pressuring you to do. It's because those things do help raise the overall visibility and people discovering what we're doing on the podcast. So, Andrew, thanks again for coming on Speaking Destroy. You guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downing.